Welcome to Ecoactivist Journey. My name is Leah, I'm your show host, and I'm finally back with a new episode. This is actually my 51st podcast episode, which is wild. I didn't even realize I'd hit 50. So uh, just a thank you to everyone who's been around all this time, uh, listening in, supporting the podcast, um, following on Instagram, um, Ecoactivist Leah or Ecoactivist Journeys, and of course, the podcast listening in into the episodes. Um, it, it really means a lot. And it's it's really nice to know that there's a community sort of connected around the world through through listening to this. And I really hope you'll enjoy today's episode, the 51st as well. It's as a response to fires that we're seeing in Europe. And um, I'm interviewing Lyndon Pronto, um, a fire expert from the European Forestry Institute, um, who's also a previous wildland firefighter in California. And he's going to share some stories um, from firefighting, but also um, about the fires that we're seeing in the world and what we can expect in the future. So yeah, I really hope you will enjoy this episode to to listen to those stories, to sort of ponder on what we can all do um, in this increasingly more fire-prone world. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for being here and let's dive into the episode. Welcome to Ecoactivist Journeys, Lyndon. Um, maybe to start off, you can tell me a little bit more about your story. Um, how come you've decided to become a firefighter and then later also become a fire expert for the European Forestry Institute? All right. Um, sure. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I, I actually never had it on my uh, agenda, so I decided to become a firefighter. I know a lot of kids are like, oh, I want to grow up and be a firefighter. Yeah. I grew up with it. My dad was a firefighter, so um, I had it from very early on. I was probably, since I was probably old enough to walk, I was out on the property helping my dad do, you know, prescribed burning and um, managing the fuel on our property. Um, and then, I don't know, when I was probably 12, 13, something like that, we had uh, a neighbor was burning. Then he lived down, kind of down the slope from us. Um, and I, I come from Northern California, which is a very fire prone area. Mm -hmm. And so we would have really big fires in the area. And it was always kind of a, a scary thing if you have a fire nearby, because you never know, you know, who's, who's next in terms of, you know, who loses their home or whatever. So, um, yeah, we ran down there and that was the first fire I got to fight. You know, his, his burn pile got out of, <laughs> out of control and, uh, started you know, kind of running up the slope and luckily first on the other side away from us, but it wasn't very large. It was maybe a tenth of an acre or so, but I was like my first experience, like really getting that adrenaline rush and, and experiencing, mm -hmm. you know, the satisfaction of then getting it out. Um, so after that, it, maybe something shifted in me to where it kind of grabbed a hold of me. Um, and then some years later in uh, for my senior project in high school, I, part of my senior project was doing my basic training to become a firefighter, mm -hmm. a wildland firefighter for the U.S. Forest Service. And so I did that when I was 17 years old. And then <clears throat> after I graduated, um, I started working as a seasonal wildland firefighter for the U.S. Forest Service. And um, I did that for 
uh, about seven seasons uh, working food pot fires in eight different states across the West, um, made it as far east, shall I say, as, as Texas, <laughs> um, but mostly mostly on the West. Um, and yeah, I, I worked on different types of crews. I worked on the fuels crews, which were like really just your daily work was fuel management mm -hmm. or and then we would also do initial attack if there was a fire. And that crew also did fire use, which is kind of a, a rarity, which where you go out and you monitor um, fires and you don't necessarily take measures to combat them. These are fires that are burning maybe in more remote areas that aren't really threatening anything. Mm -hmm. So it's much more um, accompanying the fire and, and letting it do its natural process um, and then stepping in if, it, if there's like maybe a cultural heritage site that needs to be protected or something like that. And then I worked. Uh, what was just to ask Beth yeah. on that? What was like the scariest fire that you think you encountered in that time? Um. Well, I mean, there's there's moments where a lot of factors kind of line up. We we call it the Swiss cheese effect, where you, there's a lot of different holes in your picture where you have just okay, that's going wrong, that's going wrong. Um, somebody's getting injured, so it wasn't always necessarily like this dramatic flaming inferno that was coming. I mean, there's certainly been moments where um, there was, you know, a fire, for instance, where it was just really blowing up and because it was coming towards us, there was also a lot of smoke. So we the could hear it. Be scary as well in that instance. Yeah. And so people just describe it as like a freight train or a continuous thunderclap where it's just, makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up because you can't see it. You just hear it. You just hear it romping around and it's just this constant roar. Um, so that, that can be kind of disconcerting because you never know what, what it's going to do. Um, or I've had, you know, I've had a, a situation where I've had to, we were surrounded on also, you know, three sides by fire and there was kind of a cliff on the other side and, um, and everything just kind of blew up and we didn't really have much of a chance except to go to our safety zone, which would, was an area that had just burned. So then we had two helicopters coming and dropping water on us to keep us cool and, and basically until we could move again. Um, and, you know, I was in uh, Colorado Springs uh, 2012 when we lost 367 homes that night. And that was, that was kind of a crazy, that was like on the fire front, mm -hmm. homes burning everywhere and you're running around in the middle of it, um, you know, trying to figure out how, how to save some homes. So, um, it really depends on the situation or, you know, some of the more scarier situations is just like more calm situations where people are just going, dropping left and right, getting hit by rocks, falling down cliffs, you know, just getting injured. Um, and you just start to think like, what are we doing on the side of this mountain? Um, all these factors are lining up to where something bad can, you know, things are already happening. Or, so it's really different kind of types of bad situations. <laughs> And not just fire coming, but like you said, different, yeah, situations of really weird weathers. Yeah, it sounds really scary. I know I had an incident which I thought was pretty scary, but nowhere near, obviously, firefighting, which was in in um, South Africa, in um, Montague Mountains. And we were there, I think, I mean, it's quite close to Cape Town. We were just there for like a weekend. And then we were hiking on the day before in these mountains. It was beautiful and everything was really nice. It was quite warm. We were like, jumping and springing in like the different ponds and uh, waterfalls and whatnot 
and then the next day we're sitting on a farm and then the next day just there's this fire that started burning in the valley that we were hiking in the day before and it was pretty scary because we're like well, what if we would have been like in that like valley now because i mean fire like just comes so quickly and moves so quickly you, you don't know if you'd have the chance to like escape as quickly and it just sort of came down towards the farm and then we had to leave as well but that like I thought that was pretty scary for me personally because you see you know you were like oh my gosh what if we would hike that today and then also you see it coming towards the town and towards the farm area and uh, pretty pretty sad I think to watch as well if you've been in a beautiful landscape area and you just see it burn away yeah definitely and I mean part of it is you know safely and effectively fighting fire is not ever really getting yourself in situations that are scary you know you can't control everything but if you kind of follow the protocols and the standard operating procedures you avoid these situations so um i think a lot of people kind of consider it as like a scary profession but in the end if you're if you're mitigating the risks and and you know only engaging as you should then for the most part it's a it's a not so scary affair but you know, things are changing and the fires that we're seeing today are really explosive. And so our capacity, despite being, you know, the highest trained, the best equipped and, you know, all these, all these elements that we have going for us, they're just not sufficient anymore. So, you know, we're having a lot more scary situations where um, firefighters are getting entrapped or nearly entrapped or just really, you know, these near misses. Um, and that's just because the, the fire mm -hmm. conditions have changed since, since the last decade. Yeah. Anyway, I interrupted you in your story. Oh, anyway, so I did that for for seven years, and then I thought um, I thought I'd kind of say goodbye to the the fire career. I I got kind of political with it. I um, firefighters are are you know poorly paid, uh, which is why we have this huge retention issue in the states where maybe we have eighty percent capacity in wildland firefighting right now. So even though the fires have never been worse and you know more dangerous, we've had fewer firefighters and fewer capacity because so many people with the skill set have gone on to other agencies um, and this has been this kind of process that's been a long time coming and so I was one of those people that had it in my mind uh, as I was kind of an activist as well in college and so that's, I was like all right uh, you know I'm going to speak up on this issue because everybody kind of it's this old culture of you asses and elbows we call it you keep your head down you do your job you don't speak up about the fact that you're getting paid really low amount or agent, other agencies that you're working side by side with are getting paid way better, getting benefits. We had no health coverage as, as firefighters um, until Obama finally, you know, signed into law for, for seasonals. Um, and so I kind of went to first local media um, and was talking about these issues. And I had a lot of people that are just like, you're crazy like don't don't even like don't do it that I, I, I can tell you it's not going to go well um and yeah, well but i mean if you know yeah. at the same time you're fighting fire saving people's lives and then also you have health impacts as a result of that so i mean it's only fat to demand yeah and that was part of it you know there was um in wildland firefighting divorce rates are probably upwards of 80 percent um substance abuse is is way higher suicide rates are um, 30 times the national average among wildland firefighters so it's like this silent killer where 
there's there's more firefighters dying of suicide than um, actually you know dying on the job, and that really it, you know goes to show how little this community is being taken care of while they're out there trying to take care of everybody else, um, and it's just because there's so much that you miss out when you're gone for basically you miss you know your kids childhoods you're always missing birthdays anniversaries that sort of thing um you come home and it's it's like active combat for soldiers so they come home and they don't know how to reintegrate into their you know to go back you know you're in this high stress environment constantly um and then you know you go home and then it's like you have this this finality of like the everyday life and how do you and there's no one there that most of the people most of these families like they don't you know you can't really understand it unless you do it um and so yeah it's and there's you know men mostly men you know they don't necessarily have the resources or they don't talk about it and so um this i mean this is just like one subset of the many issues but anyways i i'm just getting sidetracked <laughs> so i um I, you know, I started some online t petitions, you know, whitehouse.gov and change.org and, um, and, you know, started talking to media and, and trying to get attention on the issue and uh, basically didn't get rehired as a result, even though I had rehired rights. And then I was at this point myself where um, I had just started a family and everything that I was fighting against was now like I was kind of bearing the brunt of it. So I had this really difficult point in my life where I was like, okay, do I stand up for all the things that I've been fighting for or, and at what cost, because I knew that my job was basically, so it was like, okay, do I sue the federal government? And, and because I know that I'm in the right and what they're doing to me is actually illegal. Um, and I had a colleague that I work with and she, and she had just gone through this whole process with uh, uh, sexual assault within the same, my same district. Um, and so I talk, I was talking to her and I was like, help me out. Like, you know, you, you, you're in the middle of this. Like you actually stood up for yourself. You, she testified in front of Congress. Like she, it was a huge thing, you know, national news. And, and she was one of the, you know, three, four women that kind of blew the whole situation open on, on sexual abuse within the wildland fire community. Um, and she was just like, don't do it. Like, even if you win, you lose. And so that was kind of like, a moment for me where I was like, okay, like, <laughs> I have a, you know, be hard news to hear as well because you're like, you want to yeah. fight for what's right, but exactly, and it was to what cost as well. Yeah, and so that was like I said, I was like one of the hardest decisions in my life to just be like to let that go, and <clears throat> so then I worked one more season after that, and at the same time I applied for scholarships and uh, a master's program in Germany, and so. Uh, first, I, I got the scholarship, the full ride scholarship to Germany, but then I didn't get into the master's program. And then I was like, all right, I'll do one more season. And then so I did fire for one more season. And then I, then it worked out. I got into both. Uh, I got the scholarship and the master's program. And so then uh, my my wife and daughter, who was around three at the time, we moved to Freiburg. And I thought I'd kind of said goodbye to the whole fire thing until uh, not long into my master's program, we were. Uh, I studied environmental governance, and so part of the program was really, um, it was kind of like one of these primer programs for kind of like direction of UN and international relations and that sort of thing. Um, and so we had a lot of field trips and to like development banks, to to Geneva, to the UN, to different you know kind of international organizations and processes. And 
I was at, at KFW, the, the development bank in Frankfurt, and I'd ask them a question about fire in the Amazon or something like that. And they were like, oh, well, you should know, like the famous fire professors at Freiburg. <laughs> like, what is this? <laughs> you applied to the university not even knowing that they were famous fire yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. so then i was like all right so i gotta go find this guy and, and uh and then of course me having the practical background yeah. in firefighting is i think attractive and then also the governance and the policy and all mm -hmm. that so uh i started quickly working at the global fire monitoring center in freiburg um and then it was just like well i guess i can't get away from the fire topic <laughs> this fate would have it and then i was quickly um you know, I started working in, in Indonesia at the time. Um, I had a couple projects there. So one was uh, developing, helping develop a, a regional fire management resource center for Southeast Asia, uh, which was kind of one of the satellite centers of the Global Fire Monitoring Center. And one of the, the first things I did on the job, which was like super fascinating for me, because I was doing all the, I was, it was relating directly to my studies about basically how to influence policy, how to, you know, get in the middle you know get in the thick of it and so i had this task of collecting there's like 14 regional you know regions around the world that were part of this global wildland fire network and we had this uh wildland fire conference in in south korea that was going to happen the next fall and so my job was to collect all these regional statements and then basically meld them into a conference statement so I was that person like behind the scenes that was, you know, producing the global conference statement for this conference. Mm. Um, and so then, yeah, that, that was, of course, super exciting, you know, going to Korea and then, you know, meeting all the top experts, fire experts around the world. And just like that just blew my horizon wide open. It's like, oh, my gosh, this fire thing is not just a West Coast thing. This is a, a global issue. And there's way more fire in other areas uh, of the world. And so that really got me excited. and we had that smoke and haze episode at the time in in Indonesia, which was basically this global catastrophe that was happening simultaneous to us being at the conference there. Um, and so then, you know, then I lobbied to like get, you know, try and get that outcome of that process like into, and well, the other thing that was happening simultaneously was the COP in Paris. And so, so it was like, okay, how do we get some of these outputs like into the COP process and, and have it be considered? And um, so that was exciting. And then I had at the same time that I wrote a, an op-ed that was then actually published in New York Times, like all in that, that span of a few days. So I was like, okay, this has gone really great. <laughs> Life accelerates in weird ways. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was hugely exciting. And then, um, yeah, and then we actually, you know, we were successful in, in, in lobbying the the, you know, the Brazilian delegation, um, the Indonesian, and I think uh, there's one other country, I forget, maybe Singapore or something like that, but to have um, fire actually be addressed at the country level talks, which was something that was, that had, uh, to my knowledge, had never been done before, that mm -hmm. at the, in the global statements, um, at the cop, any of the cops that actually just fire was even mentioned. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and of course, it was a huge issue at the time. And so yeah, that kind of that hooked me because I was I was having kind of this uh, crisis internally where I was thinking, okay, actually I didn't want to do this fire thing. Like I really wanted to do environmental policy, and you know my passion was environment. That was like all the stuff I was involved in in college was about you know saving the world, saving environment, you know all these that sorts of things. And so um, then I was like, 
fire always was this really practical ground level thing that was just this response thing. So mm-hmm. I didn't really, I had this kind of internal crisis about, okay, am I really going to get back into this fire topic? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of started after Korea, I started really in Indonesia, I started really like putting, connecting the dots for me and saying like, okay, maybe I am actually in the right spot because we have, we have global conventions and accords for water, for air, for soils. So, and if you think of the the four classical elements, fire, yeah, fire <laughs> is the fourth element. And so I was like, the but same, we the same element. We don't have anything for fire. There's yeah. there's there's nothing. Even though fire is just as important in regulating the global system, the Earth system, um, we don't have anything for fire. Um, so I was like, oh, maybe maybe I have found my niche. And so then I. Yeah. We still don't have anything for fire. Yeah, we still, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work on it. But. <laughs> so, yeah. So then I, I had these projects in Indonesia where um, it was great because I had um, experience like in the field, like, you know, working in the peat swamps in, in West Kalimantan to, you know, high level policy stuff in, in Jakarta and the capital. Um, and then. Um, then I then I ended up in the Congo, which East Eastern Congo, which is like a whole different situation. <laughs> yeah, you really experienced a different fire situation located throughout the world. Yeah, so I didn't quite know what I walked into there, because um, I was going to come from Indonesia, and then we had family vacation in Croatia, and then I was like in this three day journey via Rwanda into Eastern DRC, which is you know still a conflict zone. Um, and so where I ended up was just like an area where there was no other aid organizations working because of the security issues. Um, and the only reason I got there was because I went in over a German NGO that had hired me to uh, basically train, equip, and set up uh, six fire brigades for for wildland firefighting mm-hmm. um, in in these different um, parishes. And so that was a whole nother you know, perspective and experience, just like, yeah, coming from, that was, that was where it was like, it was difficult to then come back to a place like Germany where we have it so well. And just like to hear people, you know, what people complain about after (laughs) experiencing that. Um, And yeah, so that was, um, I went down there a couple of times and I had another project for the U.S. Forest Service International Programs for U.S. Aid. also for the Congo, but at kind of a national level, developing a training program for um, kind of I develop a three-tier training program for mm-hmm. locals, for like actual just firefighters, and then for fire managers, some more in-depth stuff for like prescribed burning and more kind of complicated concepts, fire ecology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Aside from that, I was working in, in um, some European projects, Fire In, which is a five-year project that I'm just now finishing up. And that's exploring the capability challenges and gaps at European level for, um, you know, for the fire and rescue services. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have thematic working groups for, you know, CBR and RE, um, structured fires, natural disasters. So everything from, uh, you know, fires to search and rescue to terrorist attacks to pandemic. It was all like covered in this project. Um, and I was responsible for the the landscape fire group. Mm-hmm. Um and so that was hugely interesting because, you know, every, every, I would get these, organize these workshops and webinars and get people from all, all sorts of countries mm-hmm. around Europe. And I would really get in-depth knowledge of like, what were all the challenges in that particular country context? And, you know, what com- common challenges do we have that we can overcome? And then getting those, you know, forwarding those results and, and 
bringing inputs into the, the European Commission to DG Home for the standardization agenda, um, and in terms of um, also developing new funding calls and stuff like that for new projects. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was a project that was very <clears throat> um, eye-opening for me as well, just like to work with all these different, to have that opportunity to, to work and get to know all these different experts from different countries. And um, so that's kind of been my journey to where I am now um then i joined the european forest institute in mm -hmm. 2020 um and um to focus on a project just in germany so i'd been in germany for you know eight years or at that mm -hmm. point you know six years or whatever but i never really worked on fire in germany i would do prescribed burning in germany and i'd obviously organized events and stuff here um but that was the first time i was like working in german not english and working in the German context with the German fire service with the German foresters. Um, and yeah, so I guess fire is taking uh, quite the journey mm -hmm. uh, over. Yeah, um, no, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what I thought was really eye opening is, you know, looking at the different elements, we really don't have anything looking at fire globally, but it's such a problem. And we often have that comparison, you know, the world burning and everything with, with climate change and, and with the fires. So clearly it's there, but it's not really within many of the international discussions yet around, well, how do we tackle this and look at this globally? Um, so, yeah, it's it's quite interesting. But um, what would you say, you know, with the fires currently happening in Europe, does this like intensity of the fires um, and sort of, the increased occurrence of them does that surprise you or are you saying well this was bound to happen um it was just a matter of time or does it looking at the global situation with climate change you were thinking well yeah it's not a surprise at all yeah i would say both um because you know we've been those of us in the community have been sounding the, the warning for years mm -hmm. now it's like yeah. this is this massive amount of fuel buildup that we have the the cascading effects of rural exodus um, across Europe, leaving these landscapes to be, um, you know, completely overgrown. At the same time, we have um, an aging demographic of people in these areas. Most countries still are based on voluntary fire, firefighting systems. So um, if you have fewer young people in rural areas, then when there is a fire, not only is it more extreme because the land is less intensively managed, but then the people that are there have a have a you know lessened ability to be able to respond because there's fewer you know useful mm -hmm. firefighters in the area that's yeah. more uh, an older demographic um and so yeah we just have these like compounding issues no matter what perspective you look at it from a response or a prevention um or a preparedness standpoint you you have kind of this downward trend of conditions that are just leading up to the point where we're seeing these more extreme fires um and then compounded by climate change in terms of um you know the, the high pressure system that's been sitting off in the atlantic they're just sending all this um you know uh first of all more wind across the landscape so it's like working its way completely across europe and it's not just something that's um in the past we've had more like okay spain portugal got hit you know like that that was like more of a localized weather event where you have um extreme fires going on and then other countries could help if needed right now we have a situation where we're having the same conditions from portugal all the way to ukraine 
mm-hmm. and and having just like these extreme extremely high temperatures um poor overnight the recoveries for the the relative humidity which is which is the window where the fire intensity goes down but also where your ability to actually contain it goes up and so when you have more active fire burning at night it, it creates a lot more problems for containment um so in the end it's like no does it surprise me and on the other hand yes it surprises me and just like the the you know the imagery and the stories that i hear and what i see is just like it's still kind of shocking it's still like wow like that that is not the type of fire behavior that i would expect in europe you know it's like i've seen it from australia or from you know whatever california um but to actually see the the amount of fuel burning and the flame height and just how little people look compared to what they're you know trying to squirt a little bit of water on there and just seeing this across the board from slovenia to you know it's like yeah we've seen some of that stuff from portugal spain but then it's working its way north and yeah you're seeing it in like the uk and in ireland and every all of those places where you you normally think you know fire is not yeah biggest topic uh, but you see that now and i think that's yeah, and now it's the you know the wildland urban interface where it's like we knew it was coming but then it's also still kind of this kind of hits you in the face where it's just like bam we're here like we've reached that point we mm-hmm. it's not something that we're we've been talking about that's going to happen like it is happening now we have urban areas that are going up in flames in central you know northwestern european countries mm-hmm. and that's just something that is obviously obviously people aren't equipped to deal with it you know from the setup of the response structure um and i think it's also for the psyche of the 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 people that live there it's kind of a a shock also because it's just like this is not this doesn't happen here in london or yeah yeah Yeah. what would you say what what area has been sort of hit the west or maybe hit the west in terms of surprise suddenly having fire there but not having the necessary response um services available to deal with the fire um, I mean, that's really hard to say because we've always had these kind of outliers where, you know, it's like, well, a perfect storm of conditions will come together and it'll be like really bad and it'll be surprising, whatever. Um, I think there's different ways to unpack that. You know, one is like, okay, this happening like on the outskirts of London, like that is really surprising. Mm-hmm. That is really shocking. Like I didn't necessarily see that coming per se, like the imagery um of that many homes being raised to the ground is not something that i necessarily expected out of that part that being said you go south to wales south wales and it's like a completely different landscape you know they've been dealing with fires and 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 major arson issue and that's very they have a lot of wildland fire in 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 wales um and yeah i think um you know even germany to a certain extent this year maybe because I was like on site and able to kind of feel it a little more. Um, we've had some, you know, 2018, we had some big fires in Germany. Um, one of the fires I was on uh, in between Saxon and, and Puttenbrook, I mean, that was a 900 hectare fire. Um, and it's like, okay, eventually was under control and got out, but also being there, just like seeing how many things went wrong or didn't go like they should go or just the, gaps that we have because we're not used to dealing with fires like that where firefighters were nearly getting entrapped where um then you have this whole added complexity of the unexploded ordinance issue in germany where like two percent of germany's land mass is contaminated with unexploded ordinance so 
a lot mm -hmm. of areas you can't do direct fire, you know, traditional firefighting. You have to basically uh, put water on it or wait for it to burn or whatever. And this is where we're having a discussion about, you know, how, what different tactics do we introduce in this concept? But there was, um, in that particular situation, it was kind of surprising to me. Um, once again, or not surprising, but it was just like um, validation, like, okay, we have a wildland urban interface issue in Germany, which nobody wants to talk about. Um, and I saw it, the wake up that I had was actually a couple of years ago, and that was in Siegburg, and they had a fire start on the side of the, the train uh, line, mm -hmm. and, you know, in light, flashy fuels, so it spread immediately and then there was a housing development right there and so they mm -hmm. lost a number of houses and cars and like a ton of injuries like i don't know two two three thousand people got somehow injured or something like that so it's just like in a matter of is extremely short span of time and so we saw there it's like we have a wildland urban interface issue in germany mm -hmm. um but nobody kind of registered it like that it was just like oh there was just this fire that happened and it caused a huge amount of damage mm -hmm. And fires in in a context that in a country that are really densely populated don't have the time per se that you know you would have a fire burning yeah. somewhere in a, yeah. on a continent where you have a lot more space in between. Yeah. So you, Europe is very densely populated, so almost everywhere you'll hit population pretty quickly. Right. And so you had like the fire in Potsdam, Middlemark, you know, a couple of years ago, where it's like they had. It wasn't that big of a fire. I don't know. It's 30 hectares or something like that. Mm -hmm. But you had two major highways shut down, like an airport shut down, major train lines. There was a gas line coming in that, you know, supplied a huge amount of gas to Germany. <laughs> like, I don't know how many. I mean, it was like a mass, you know, one of the biggest supply lines. So it's like you have a small fire and it could cause economic havoc mm -hmm. um, without it turning into some 10,000 hectare conflagration or whatever. Um, and so these are just kind of like these little moments where it's like, all right, we have the warning signs are there and it's like we got it under control in time. Mm -hmm. But if we didn't and in the same situation just a few weeks ago in Brandenburg where the, the village, you know, nearly got hit, you know, it's like the fires, they stopped the fire right before it hit the village. And the same in another village nearby where they thought it was evacuated and it wasn't. And so there was not good communication. And so, you know. Everybody was just sitting on their suitcases because they hadn't given the, been given the final word to evacuate. And had they not stopped it in time, that could have been a really bad situation. And so these are where it's like that. It's, it's not really surprising per se, but these are these little like where the light bulb goes off. Where I'm just like, ooh, like if we don't learn something from that really quickly, we are going to be making the headlines with some tra tragic incident, you know, wherever it is. Yeah. Maybe you can explain us a little bit more about like how actually climate change is worsening the whole situation with fires um europe but just in general around the world um yeah i mean this is a very complex process um based on this uh, nexus of human activity in the landscape or lack thereof um i talked a little bit about the rural abandonment um and the fuel buildup in these areas and so one thing is that when those areas do burn they release way more carbon, you know, it's like this carbon bomb that goes up, um, which then remains to be seen whether that same amount of carbon will be resequestered when, you know, when it greens up next spring and, and what kind of plant species come back, or if we've actually reached this tipping point in certain areas where we have a, a regime change, a, a vegetation regime change, 
where the type of vegetation that was there before the fire, the fire was so intense and nuked the landscape so much that what returns after the fire is a different type of vegetation, which has a different relationship to, um, you know, carbon sequestration. Um, and or just like different social dynamics where we've had traditional crop burning in Eastern Europe, Eurasia, you know, for centuries. Um, but what we're starting to see now is that when you're burning those crops, um, that smoke is getting directly transported up to the, you know, Arctic Circle and you're getting black and brown carbon being deposited on Arctic ice, which is lowering its albedo effect. So it's absorbing more sunlight and melting the ice faster, which in turn is putting more fresh water on top of the ocean, which in turn is creating more extreme weather and warmer weather and pushing the jet stream uh, south. So, so it's like you very interconnected. Yeah. yeah so it's like no, no matter where you look in the world, you have this uh, feedback loop where it's causing more. And then obviously in the tropics, you know, whether the Amazon or in Indonesia or wherever, um, you having you know, the Amazon is basically in the next decade or so projected to become a carbon um, source instead of a carbon sink. That's so scary. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of different factors at play there. So just basically bordering the Amazon, you have um, savanna areas which are very fire prone environments that should regularly burn. Um, and but then you have this edge effect where because of human activity, because of deforestation, because of increased fire, because of like more roads, you have edge effects. So if there's, if you have a, a you know, a, a forest that's supposed to have a closed canopy cover to maintain that ecosystem, mm -hmm. when you, when you put a road through there, um, you have more sunlight coming in, there's an edge effect. And if you have a road there, it also means you're going to have probably people or whatever activity happening there, yeah. which becomes a source of fire that wasn't previously there. And now the fuel is drier. The vegetation's drier, and so it can catch on fire more easily. And then you have this creeping effect, where um, you know, regardless of what the situation is, whether it's like just a simple road or large-scale deforestation or large-scale burning slash and burn agriculture slash and burn timber, um, that is basically lowering you know the the vitality of that entire ecosystem and creating a, a feedback loop where the more fire you have, the more fire you'll get. Um, and in Indonesia and in the tropics, you know, it's the same situation. And there it's, you know, draining the peatlands so that you can burn them. So there's lots of, that's a really a socioeconomic issue there as well. So like mm -hmm. the amount of poverty that's there, companies, they can come in and offer smallholders money to basically convert their land and they pay them out. And it's all, of course, under the table. So it's really hard to enforce. Um, and then you have, you know, these huge areas that are just being burning uncontrollably. There's stopping a peat fire is insanely difficult. Um, you know, underground fires are, you can't apply the same type of methods or whatever for, for firefighting or for stopping them. And so then you have this drying effect where, you know, because everything is canalized, um, you just lower the water table. And so you, with different dams and stuff like that. So when you have an area that's basically completely divided up and, and canalized, you can control the water table. And so they lower the water table. So everything dries out and then they can burn it off. And so that is yeah. releasing age old carbon stocks from those areas. And then it's not being sequestered again. Yeah. We're definitely not talking enough about that sort of thing, like peatland fires, because obviously it's not as typically as like a forest, but 
I mean, arguably, depending on where in the world you actually releasing more carbon dioxide and, and more greenhouse gases than, say, maybe some forest somewhere else because of, yeah, that carbon sink that it was and also the depth because it's so hard to, to yeah, put out the fire, I suppose. Yeah, so, well, and we also have kind of our, it's disproportionate the amount of attention we spend on looking at fires burning in our, our so we say, Western settled yeah. environments. Um, because the the carbon release from from those areas burning is is marginal compared to the carbon release from areas that shouldn't be burning that are now burning now in the Arctic Circle, for instance. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you take Russia, for instance, and Russia, you know, as far as non-savannah ecosystems is like the number one, you know, place where we have a huge amount of fire happening. Um, and there, because most of the areas are so remote, so Russia has a system of Basically, it's a system of cryptography where they say, you know, it's like they have it zoned in different colors and they say, okay, if a fire is burning in this area, then it's a full suppression response. If it's burning in this area, then it's, uh, you know, we'll send maybe a couple uh, smoke jumpers or whatever out to monitor it or deal with it. If it's burning in this area, which this area being basically the Arctic Circle, where their population is really low, there's not a lot of assets there, they basically have a no action policy. So you have a positive feedback loop happening with climate change and, and all that to have these areas which are emitting the, the highest amount of carbon from these age-old carbon stocks that are sequestered in the in the permafrost, which is now dethawed, um, and there's no action to combat them. So there's there's no, you know, it's like a double problem by not even doing anything about it. And obviously other countries are not going to go help Russia put out their fires right now. <laughs> so... Um, and so, Russia's putting on more fires. Yeah, and, and they're you know burning down all sorts of other areas. Yeah. So it's it's certainly as far as climate change goes, it's certainly a, yeah. a a feedback loop where we are just now learning how damaging the compounds are in a lot of the the you know smoke that's released. So before it was not not so understood um, just how much methane was being released and just how damaging that is all these other compounds um you know it's like oh it's just co2 or whatever but it's like no it's like all these other compounds and of course if entire cities or towns burn Mm -hmm. then that's a whole different public and environmental health catastrophe there yeah i mean i i asked you this before we started the interview but obviously because we always have such a western perspective of looking at well anything that's happening in the world really what ends up in the news but also fires so what which area you know in the world actually burns the most like what's a very like fire permanent area um, yeah well i mean africa is the notorious fire continent right and you have burning periods with the different seasonalities that you know after where it, it depends on what calendar month you start at <laughs> basically you know if you look at the um if you look at a, a visualization map it'll you know start up at the, up at the top go down to the bottom go back up to the middle go back to the middle so you have just across the continent you basically have um, burning 365 days out of the year. Um, but this is a very fire prone ecosystem. It is an ecosystem. It's a very fire dependent ecosystem. Um, and it is a self-regulating ecosystem because I would say, you know, in Africa, we've probably had less, you know, across the continent, there's probably been like less manipulation of, of forest cover than in other areas. Um, 
Yeah, so obviously a lot more tragic if we have rainforests and peatland burning in, in some other areas of the world in terms of carbon emissions. At right. Least. But, you know, because we've overall tampered with ecosystems, they're less um, resilient. Yeah. Then it's like there's it's has a more of an equilibrium in terms of carbon sequestration and carbon emissions now. That's why there's a, a huge focus uh, on the rainforest in the Congo and on these peatlands in the Congo, just because if we start messing with that, which up until now has been like relatively untouched, if we start messing with that in the way that we've messed with the Amazon or, or Southeast Asia, um, then we're going to have, you know, once again, even more catastrophic consequences because one of the last really untouched places on this planet would then, you know, become a, a source of carbon. Yeah, scary things. <laughs> but you know what? What can we actually? How can we stop like carbon sinks and and forests from burning down in the world? What what can we do? I'd love to hear some more, especially where you because you were saying earlier we need sort of a global way to look at this. But um, yeah, what would you say? Um, there's you know there's the classic bottom down you know uh, bottom up top down approaches. Really, it comes down to in my experience, it comes down to economic issues. Um, whether it's poverty or whether it's uh, greed or lack of regulation on economic, you know, drivers. Um, so it kind of depends on the context. Let's take Europe. I think that what we need to do in the European context is reinvest, which is a little bit difficult because it's contradictory to some of the kind of the outputs of the UN processes where we say we need to build more vertically. We need to, you know, be more concentrated in cities with our growing population to have less of an impact on the on the overall landscape and environment. And from a fire perspective, I, you know, I would disagree with that. We need more activity in the landscape. We're seeing now the result of more concentrated activity, more concentrated living in the in cities. And we can't we can't really ignore the fact that we have cultural landscapes across Europe, you know, Europe being so densely populated. Um, we have a fire you know fire regimes and and the climate has regulated itself over the centuries based off of human activity in the landscape and that's not exclusive to europe that's you know the case in north america with with native americans using fire in the landscape it's the case with the aboriginal use of fire in in, in australia it's the case in in africa with fire use there um and so we're not exempt from you know, our actions of the past in terms of, of the consequences for the future. And we have, like I was talking about earlier, the rural exodus issue. So, you know, how do we make our landscapes more resilient is we have to find this equilibrium of, of acknowledging, okay, we've had this impact in the landscape and this mosaic that we've once had and this, and this equilibrium that we've had, um, we need to somehow find a balance and achieve that which means investing back in the landscape, invest creating jobs in rural areas, um, having you know less, shall we say, factory farming and having more uh, farming and, and grazing in the landscape to maintain the vegetation cover, to break up the landscape so that if a fire comes through, it's not just like having no obstacles. Um, it's having, you know, it's being broken up by different types of land uses, whether it's grazing or agriculture or whatever. That's interesting because obviously sometimes fragmentation is also not good for like ecosystems. But you say in some contexts, obviously with fire management, it's easier for land space. Yeah, and that's that's the challenge because we need to find some sort of balance, you know, for species and for animals and stuff like that. It's obviously great if we kind of just like abandon the land and let it do its thing. Um, but 
it's not great to, if we have a value system that says we value life and property and we have a you know a climate situation where we're looking at how we're regulating emissions um we need to find some sort of equilibrium again and it's not just like one or the other it's not everybody go live in the countryside and everybody or everybody go live in the cities but we need to revalue and revitalize and, and have more activity in the landscape in the european context if you look at like i was just talking about indonesia um it's like a poverty issue you know the the fact that on the one hand you have a really low level of regulation like indonesia is great because they have they have all the right laws for all the right things but their enforcement capacity indonesia is huge um it's 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 mind-boggling just the expanse like i don't know it's like thirty thousand islands or whatever it is and so you have I was what really blew me away was one of the times I was there as they were having elections and I think they had like a half a million candidates or something like that just like countrywide for just like all the different offices and I was just like wow that's a lot that's a lot of people who are managing a lot of areas who are being influenced have agendas have you know it's just like and and you boil that in down to a perspective of like most people are just looking how to provide for their family how to have enough food and at the same time, we have some of the wealthiest corporations in the world there. You know, every all these like palm oil, which is in every single product that we use, paper, we use them. You know, so it's like these are companies that have undue influence over over the activity in this landscape. And you can see it with elections where there's a spike in fire use or instances of fires in Indonesia um, prior every every prior year to an election or in election years. So basically, um, you know, some people have proven or drawn the conclusion that um, local authorities are less, either less lenient and um, and are less diligent when it comes to fire use, mm -hmm. or they're actually being bought off for burning peatland areas, um, so that the companies, once they're in office, these companies are getting way more profits um, because they're having access to way more land. And so that is, you know, partially a corruption issue. It's a it's a poverty issue because people are much more influenced to be able to say, okay, yeah, I'm just gonna like, if I'm gonna get money to do this to my land versus not get any money to not do that, then of course the, the decision is clear. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 complicated because I guess there's so much that's happening in the world, and sometimes I think it can seem a bit overwhelming and scary. I think especially you know, as citizens sort of watching, you know, what are the fires that are happening, the different political situation. Um, so I don't know, what what would you share as sort of something people can do to respond to, um, yeah, I guess fires and, and climate change in general, looking at what's happening with the stories in the world? Um, yeah, I guess understanding the context you live in, um, understanding what those problems are, I think it's really easy to say, well, it's like, I don't, I'm just a regular person. Like, what do I know about fire? What, what, what's, why is it relevant for me? Um, but, you know, it's like going back to that classical four elements. I mean, this is like, you know, a lot of people concern themselves about the quality of their water, where they get their water from, or whether or not to use water excessively or not. So, we, you know, we have, um, we have certainly kind of, average citizen awareness on certain issues. And I think fire also needs to become one of them. And obviously areas that are getting hit repeatedly with devastating fires, these people have that, they have that awareness. 
-hmm. you know, people in, in California, for instance, you know, it's like they're constantly living in fear that their property and their house is going to be next. And so mm -hmm. they go out and they, and they clear around their house, they clear their property, they um, are conscious about what, you know, what's a good day to mow your lawn or not mow your lawn or whatever. And so, um, you know, having this awareness of, um, you know, what, what does it mean to be responsible? What does it mean to protect myself? And mm -hmm. in Europe, you know, we have this kind of culture of like somebody else is going to take care of us in, in more, shall I say, you know, more socialized systems where you have more services at your disposal uh, versus in contexts where you're more left to your own devices uh, to take care of yourself. So I think that there needs to be a lot more personal responsibility, um, which, you know, can apply to anything, whether it's consumption yeah. or, you know, um, how you, you know, how you behave out in the woods or yeah. whatever. So um, just, yeah, more of an awareness that everything that we do has a ripple effect or everything that we don't do has a ripple effect and that we, you know, kind of come together as communities and look at, okay, well, is this a, an area? Um, how do we safeguard our culture? How do we safeguard our, our yeah. landscape, our, our ecosystems? Um, and coming together really yeah and also being more aware of like people if you go out into the woods or something and people decide oh well, this is not they don't think it's typically a fire area and then are more careless with with regards to making a fire or something like that and maybe isn't even allowed i think that's obviously also something to be aware of and to be i guess cautious of in terms of like how that's done and yeah i guess taking a sense of responsibility to to our land and our area um, is is super important um, from from everything we see because I guess especially in dry times like this it's so quick that something like fires spread so that's and that's really one of the roots of the problem with that we have with fire incidents in the European context is people that are in that landscape don't necessarily have a connection to the land mm -hmm. and so. Yeah. Um, a lot of people go out in the countryside for vacation or they go out in the countryside, they have their house there or their weekend house or whatever. And so it's this very kind of fleeting relationship where people go and they take, you know, it's like they, they use it as something to their personal benefit, but without really um, having an awareness of, okay, how do you relate to this contact? How do you actually also care for this land um, as you know, as a responsibility of, you know, just having the opportunity to be there. Um, and so there's just like, there's that awareness that's not there. Like if you live in the city, you don't have a feel for the danger, maybe of a high fire danger out in the countryside. If, if you're just like, have that disconnect. Um, and yeah, I mean, fire is such a overlapping issue, you know, just with even human migration, as you see fires happening in conjunction with that because of people moving across the landscape and using cooking fires along the way or fire being used as a weapon or, you know, it's just like the list is so long um, and how fire interacts with our human activities, um, good or bad. Because fire is a beautiful thing. Fire is so important. It is an absolutely necessary part of our global, our global system. And so how do we get back to that really healthy relationship to fire um, and get away from how we use fire in sense of in the sense of combustion in a way that's that's literally killing us and the planet
Yeah, I know we could talk on more. I, there's still the governance aspect, and I think that we could go on more in terms of like how much we need to change with our with our global system, our interaction with that. I guess corporations also have influence in, in all of this, and how that really shapes our future. And um, yeah, I guess that the the change that needs to happen that's that's really massive. But um, we'll leave it here. Exactly. Um, it was really great talking to you. And it's also really nice because I think ever since uh, when I did my radio show before the pandemic, this is probably the first like in-person, not online interview I've done. So that's really nice. Um, and um, yeah, always amazing to to hear sort of that expertise and to hear sort of what more we can do um, and connect a little bit the dots of what we have, because I think there's, we have such a massive knowledge system around the world on how we can um, create change and, and I think ultimately yeah this we need to sort of rise from from these fires that are burning to build a better world and I think that's something that we sometimes overlook with all the horrible things that are happening that the goal is actually to build a world that is, is better. Thank you for tuning into Ecoactivist Journeys. Let's join the fight towards a better world. We need everyone in this journey so please share these episodes share what inspires you and i hope you are encouraged to get involved get active in the fight for the better world rising from the ashes take care and have a wonderful rest of the day